Promise no promises. Going to the limits of your longing. The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further series. Going to the limits of your longing, research as another name for care. This collection of episodes emerged from a master symposium held in spring 2021 at the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel. The contributions to the symposium were devoted to ideas and forms of artistic research that center art as a practice in service of the social. They revisit certain moments in our recent history and present of researching, producing and exhibiting art in the name of such beliefs, namely social justice. Once upon a time, or just a couple of decades ago, women artists from various and diverging geographies began to query and study the gap that has traditionally existed between artistic and non-artistic labor. As artistic labor came to be understood as more representative of society's functioning as a whole, new questions concerning the political dimension of art and the role of the artist in contemporary society came to life. Research has often been the term applied to the act of inquiring into the post-colonial past and neo-colonial present, an inquiry whose very substance gives voice to the need to revise the fundaments of our unachieved and fragile democracies, their languages, tools, forms of violence and myriad legacies. The symposium was dedicated to the memory of Marion von Osten, the artist, curator, researcher, writer and teacher whose curatorial, theoretical and altogether empathic approaches to the medium of exhibition making revolved around artistic research devoted to the collective. Under her exemplary influence, we examined the moments when exhibitions became filled with archives, with documents of testimonies and documentaries of testifying moving images. Institutions suddenly saw the need to create collective collections. It was the beginning of a transformation that, since then, has undergone many turns and many faces, but that remains at the core of understanding art as a practice that serves the social and all the forms of justice, and its opposite, that enumerated. With contributions at the Symposia by Maria Teresa Alves, Ursula Biemann, Regina Bittner, Barbara Casavecchia, Anja Kirschner, Kabuani Kawanga, Maria Lind, Otto Bongkanga, Lydia Urachman and Miriam Amrun, Filipa Ramos, Kerstin Starkemeyer, as well as Yvonne Volkert and Peter Spielmann. Curiosity with Filipa Ramos. Filipa is a writer and curator who is interested in how art engages with ecology and fosters relationships between humans, non-humans and machines. Probably you have never heard of Jeanne Villepreux or Jane Power as she was later known. Neither have I until very recently, more or less a month ago 
when artist and master student Sergio Rojas told me about her. She was an incredible woman who had an incredible life. And I want to share her story with you today as a memento to Marion von Austin, whose engagement, curiosity and energy generated incredible communities of people and things that resonated with one another in unexpected ways. We were planning to work together on a project concerning animals and architecture. So this story of Jeanne Villepreux Power, a woman who invented a mode of encounter with other animals, is my way to say thank you to Marion. This is also my way to contribute to this ambitious and daring reflection of research as a system of care by looking for its traces inside our operative means. At the school, there's this official conversations between teachers and students that are called mentorats. And they're very important occasions for mutual learning and debate. I always have a mentorat and I always leave a mentorat knowing or feeling something that I didn't know or that I didn't feel before. To the extent that after some recent mentorats, I asked Chus if docents could have mentorats from students. It's unquestionable for me that docents and students have mutual interests, concerns, and ways of understanding the world, which are exchanged in a reciprocal manner. A vivid and emancipatory expression of care that can happen within the study and within the practice of art. And here in this talk, I want to build a chain that brings together a mentorat in the school, which introduced me to Jane Power. To Jane Power, who, as we will see, introduced the world to a perceptive predisposition that radically transformed the history of displays and exhibitions. And to Marion von Hosten, who left us with so many events of encounter with the caring side of art practice. And now I will go back a couple of centuries and start the story at the end of the 18th century, when Jeanne Villepreux was born in September 1794 in Jouillac, Limousin in central France. These were the post-revolutionary years, a time of violence and upheaval that in France became known as the terror or la terreur as they call them, which is a female term. And I really like that terror is female. But these times were also a period of progress and transformation when different forms of political, social and individual emancipation could be imagined, which is to a large extent, the story of Jane Vilpro. Her parents were not particularly well off. Registers show that her father had many professions. He was a gendarme, a village guard, a cobbler, and her mother was one of the very few alphabetized women in the region. Yet, she died very young when Jeanne was 11. And so this young girl grew up looking after the family's sheep. In 1812, when she was 17, she decided to go to Paris for work. She made the journey by walking alongside a herd of cattle that was being taken to the capital to be slaughtered and walking 500 kilometers. And this event speaks of the urban transformations that were taking place at the time. Up to the 19th century, the slaughter of animals for human consumption was mostly made by butchers in the backside of their shops. In the case of Paris, Butchers were largely gathered in the area of what is now known as the Place de Châtelet, where the blood and other animal leftovers accumulated in the streets or were thrown to the river. In 1810, public health and hygiene concerns led Napoleon 
toward the dislocation of the butchers from the city center to the five major slaughterhouses that were located in the outskirts of Paris. And similar sanitation systems were established in other large urban areas, erasing animal death from city life, cleaning cities and consciousness from its textures, visions and smells. So Jeanne Villepreux found herself participating in this sacrificial journey of cattle taking to feed and fuel the city. And indeed her own vulnerability was soon exposed, but by an event that would disrupt her plans and transform the course of her life. She was sexually assaulted by her cousin, who was also the, her guardian for the journey since she was a minor and so she had to go with a, with a, with a guardian. In Orléans, she went to the police station to present a complaint. As a result, she was detained, not because of the incident, but because she lacked the permission to travel on her own. And while she's, she was waiting for what was then called a national passport to be sent by post from Juillac, her village, um, to Orléans, she stayed in a convent of the Sisters of the Order of Visitation. And in, there was a, there's a letter that was kept um, to the mayor of Juillac. And in this letter, she reveals her eagerness to go on with her life. And she wrote, I'm in this city from which I cannot leave to go to Paris for work. Jane finally left Orléans. She reached Paris, but when she got there, the position that she was coming for, which was to be a child carer or a nanny, had already been taken by someone else. Soon later, she started working as a seamstress for two emerging couturières. They, uh, they were called the Madame Guermont et Huchet, whose atelier was in the Rue Sainte-Anne in Paris, in the very center of Paris. And this location again connects her life and to the wider history of urban transformation in Paris, because it's really fascinating that only a few decades divide Jane's activities with the establishment of an important homosexual community around the galleries of the Palais Royal and in the surrounding streets to where this atelier was. And they remained active until the 19, 1980s when this homosexual community gradually moved or was more attracted to another central area of Paris, which is called the Marais, and giving place to an emptied out um, area which was occupied by a large wave of Japanese immigration, which settled there and opened shops and restaurants that still give it this area the name of, of Little Tokyo. And in fact, the, the place where the, the Atelier de Couturière was um, is now a Japanese restaurant. Soon later, in 1816, when Jane was 22, she was asked to make a very sumptuous silvery embroideries for the wedding dress, for the wedding gown of the Princess Maria Carolina Ferdinanda de Bourbon, who came from Sicily to France to marry. The princess had traveled by boat from Palermo, where she grew up and where she lived, to Marseille, where she stayed in quarantine because of the pest at the Lazaretto di Arec for the prevention of, of the plague. She then reached Paris, and she got married at the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And the, the wedding dress was a major success and made Jane's talent widely recognized. Soon later, she meets a man called James Power, who's a young merchant from the Caribbean island of Dominica, that was then and is still a British colony. And he was trading in Sicily. 
So in 1818, two years later, the young couple moves to Messina, to Sicily. They get married and they spend the next 25 years of their life together. The life of Jane, who by then became known as Jane Villepreux Power, or simply Jane Power, radically changed when they moved to Sicily. There, she encountered the sea. Fascinated by the life and landscapes of the Mediterranean, she started walking and traveling across the island to observe, describe, and record its flora and fauna, collecting specimens of minerals and animals, and gradually becoming a self-learned naturalist. While she was living there, she wrote an itinerary of Sicily concerning all the fields of natural and ancient history it contains, and she also published a guide of Sicily, which were two important accounts on the island's landscape and natural history. In parallel, she was observing, analyzing, and cataloging the ecology of the Strait of Messina, whose hydrogeological conditions propitiate, and still do today, high levels of biodiversity and the life of multiple endemic species. The Strait is also an important area for multiple species of migratory birds and fish that traverse the Mediterranean every year. Acknowledging the various constraints that she faced, years later she would write, recalling how Quoting, for many years, I have devoted to the natural world the few hours left over from my domestic cares, as there are few moments in which people of my condition and sex can use for their own studies. But this did not prevent her from establishing a network of relationships with numerous collectors and traders of natural history objects, whose collections and displays she described exhaustively and in, with these descriptions, she provided a very impressive account of how the capture and trade of nature were generalized at the time, and in particular of those components of nature that could be materialized and objectified, such as fossils, shells, bones, and skins. And uh, she described, for instance, how Mariano Cesario had a good collection of Sicilian shells how the priest Don Mario de Francesco was a skilled collector of natural history objects and particularly of fossil, terrestrial and river shells of which he kept collections and sold them at a very moderate price. How the Dr. Mariano Zuccarello Patti had an extensive collection of shells and crustaceans from the seas of Sicily, a collection of insects, including many beetles. How the knight Mario Landolina Nava was known by locals and foreigners for his virtues and collection of organic fossils, including shells and bones of elephants, hippopotamuses, and others. How the Dottore Alessandro Rizza keeps a collection of birds, shells, and crustaceans. And how the cabinet of Mr. Gargotta is worthy of observation for its paintings, cameos, medals, terracotta works, shells, both living and fossil, minerals, and volcanic products. These are all her descriptions. And her accounts reveal, in fact, how naturalism, which was in its incipient balance between amateurism and professional expertise, was in a real 18th century obsession, a hobby in which middle and upper class individuals, mostly men, were into a frenzy of collecting plants, animals, and minerals. Their cumulative impulses aligned with major and economical and social transformations, led to major changes in the environment, 
And of course, they contributed to the dissipation of many species and ecosystems. Collectors are particularly interested in what is rare, precious, and particular. Knowing and unknowingly, these dilettante fans of nature were emptying the seas, the skies, and the lands with a desire for possessing them. Ironically, the desire caused for a rarity and led to the extinction of many living beings. And the pragmatic case is that of the great auk. Auk is written A-U-K, so you can, you can find it. A large seabird from the Northern Hemisphere that was hunted by native people and settlers alike. When scientists started realizing that these great auks were disappearing, the birds benefited from some of the earliest environmental laws to date, yet to no effect. The growing rarity only increased the interest of European museums and private collectors in obtaining skins and eggs of the birds. And in 1844, the last two specimens were killed. Yet the awareness of the interdependency of collecting and trading wildlife and its decimation isn't a real, a recent phenomenon. For instance, during its, this period, the British explorer, naturalist and great animal killer that was Alfred Russell Wallace, made a paradoxical encouragement. Kill and musify nature before it's too late. He wrote, governments and scientific institutions should immediately take steps to secure that the most perfect collections possible in every branch of natural history should be made and deposited in national museums. If this is not done, Future ages will certainly look back upon us as people so immersed in the pursuit of wealth as to be blind to higher considerations. They will charge us with having culpability allowed to having culpably allowed the destruction of some of these records of creation, which we have it in our own power to preserve. And while professing to regard every living thing as a direct handiwork and best evidence of a creator, Yet, with a strange inconsistency, seeing many of them perish irrecoverably from the face of the earth and cared for and unknown. So basically, kill these animals, preserve these animals, because otherwise we're not going to have them anymore, which is a, a big paradox. For Wallace and many others, to care meant to capture, to kill and exhibit. To care meant to dry and pickle in a jar for others to see and study. To care was to celebrate the death of nature exhibited behind a vitrine. Jane Power came to suggest that another system was possible. During her trips and observations around the Messina Strait, she gained interest in a small pelagic octopus called Argonauta Argo, the great Argonaut, an animal known for its blue eyes and the round white calcareous shell. Her fascination with the Argonauts was such that she would dedicate the next 15 years of her life to study them. This interest also led her to make an invention that would revolutionize the history of science and the history of exhibitions. At that time, most studies of marine life were made on dead specimens and were made on animals that were killed, many by the man, to be preserved in alcohol and stored in cabinets. Dissatisfied with this kill and pickle and preserve method and interested in engaging with beings that were alive, Jane gradually built and adapted her own equipment of research. 
taking advantage of living by the sea, she got herself a boat and had her own laboratory. At the same time, she started designing the carrying cases for her specimens, uh, some of which she kept in her laboratory while others remained at the sea. She wanted to be able to simultaneously observe and, and display the animals. And so she conceived a series of containers that were made of glass and that were solid enough to hold a large amount of water and which could host a sample of the sea. Inspired by the Latin and the Italian languages that in the meanwhile she had learned, she called these containers aquaria from the Latin aquarius of water. She made three models of aquaria, a glass tank that could be kept in a dry space, an underwater glass tank that was placed inside an iron and wooden cage in shallow water, which became known as the power cage, and an underwater aquarium for larger mollusks, which was equipped with anchors, which is this one that we see, and therefore could be lowered to a, to a bigger depth while the top part remained above the water, allowing for the observation of the animals. In 1832, she described her invention and she said, quote, I devised some cages seven meters long and three meters wide, which I made to my own design, leaving a convenient interval between the bars so that the water might communicate freely and the animals might not be able to get out when I had them in the sea. And I planted them in a low seabed near our citadel in a place where I could make my observations without disturbance. Jane Power had invented the aquarium, a site of relation and just position that makes the impossible, the coexistence and cohabitation of incompatible life forms of humans and fish possible. An incredible creation, the aquarium is at once a microclimate and a microcosmos, a theater and a garden, a street, a screen, a stage, a painting, a frame. It is a miniature of the sea and the totality of the sea, a slice of time and time as a whole, accumulated and flowing at once. It was Jane's curiosity, her interest in, be in being physically and visually close to the greater Argonauts, and her belief that life should be studied alive, that led her to open a window to the underwater world. Curiosity, that outstanding desire to observe and comprehend the other, derives from the Latin curious, careful, a variation of curare, take care of, from cura, care. Curiosity has the same etymology as curiosité, from which the early museums, the cabinets of curiosity, but the cabinets of curiosity were emptied out of life. It, said, it is said that curiosity killed the cat, literally, as these animals of these proto-museums contained, they were all properly dead. But curiosity also has the same etymology as curator, that who cares. With the invention of this dispositive of observation of life in its animated form, Jane Power showed how curiosity could be reunited with its roots of care. The invention of the aquarium led her to make another incredible discovery, this time concerning the greater Argonauts that she was studying. So with her discovery, she managed to resolve a long lasting dispute about how the Argonauts got their shells, 
which had created the division between two groups of naturalists, those who believed the Argonauts moved in the empty shells of other animals that were left behind, and those instead who thought that the Argonauts were making their own shells. Through the live observation of the Argonauts in the underwater aquaria, Jane Power understood that the Argonauts made indeed their own shells, but that it was not all Argonauts who did so. Actually, it was only the female Argonauts who built the shells, which they used as a protection for themselves and for their eggs. Power described how the females made the shells by secreting a thin calcareous substance from the tips of their dorsal tentacles. She also discovered that the male Argonauts look nothing like their female counterparts. Contradicting the popular and the scientific knowledge, she proved that they were not those mythical creatures known since ancient times for their capacity to travel inside a stunning white spiral, which had inspired Linnaeus to name the species Argo in 1758 in a tribute to the ancient Greek mythology ship whose round shape resembled that of the shells. Instead, Jane Power discovered that the male Argonauts were those tiny little beings that until then had been considered a small parasitic worm of the real Argonauts. But in fact, the real Argonauts, as she demonstrated, were the female Argonauts. This discovery revealed the extreme sexual dimorphism of the Argonauts in size and lifespan as females grow up to 10 centimeters and make shells that are as large as 30 centimeters, while males rarely surpass two centimeters and live just until they mate. In fact, males only mate once in their whole lifetime, dying soon afterwards, whereas females are capable of having as many offspring as they want in the course of their lives. It took a while for Jane's discovery to be recognized. She was a female, self-taught scientist, and her work was received with mistrust and suspicion, especially in France, where the male-dominated scientific community refused to recognize the legitimacy of her ideas. This long process became known as the Battle of the Argonaut. In it, she was supported by the Academy of Sciences of Catania and by a controversial British biologist called Richard Owen, who was the founding director of the London Museum of National History and is also the man who coined the term dinosaur. Jane Power was eventually appraised by her work with the Argonauts and recognized as the inventor of the Aquaria. In 1839, Richard Owen presented and defended her paper on the Argonauts against theories presented by others. Having left Sicily for London in 1837, she attended this meeting in person, and subsequently she became a corresponding member of the Zoological Society of London. And over time, she joined 18 academies in Europe, an exceptional honor for a woman in the beginning of the 19th century. It seems highly plausible to me that the thin, fragile and translucid cases built by the female Argonauts to brood their offspring salt water floating in the sea inspired Jane Power to conceive the aquaria. Also fragile and translucid cases, 
built not by a female octopus, but by a female scientist to breed and keep animals by hosting their aquatic environment within a protective setting. Jane's power aquaria are, I believe, an adaptation and transposition of the mother Argonaut's aquaria-like shells into a human environment and scale. Without the animals that inspire them, our present-day aquarium would probably be very different. The aquaria we know, the life forms they host, foster, summon, and conceive. The encounters they trigger, propitiate, and force. The lived and unlived experiences they inspire, the illusions they create, the outlandish and terrifying visions they offer, and ultimately, the animals they conceive, modify, and condition are the result of a timely pact between a female human and a few female Argonauts. No marine or human animal could have done this alone. Together, they rewrote morphology, mimicry, geography, and they made history. But Jane Power, who died in 1871, continues living through her techniques for keeping and exhibiting animals alive. Her work, together with that of another 19th century naturalist called Anna Thine, led to the development of the first public aquarium, the Fish House at the London Zoo, which opened in 1853. Soon after, the world fell in love with fish and public and private aquaria. May Jane Power's life, alongside that of all the Argonauts, continue inspiring encounters of wonder that cause awe and knowledge for the sea, as well as love, respect, and care for the species they host. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit detank.ch. That's detank.ch. Or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Moderated and curated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. Editing and voiceover, Elena Cesar. Music, Niklas Kammermeier. Research team, Marion Ritzmann, Tabea Rotfuchs and Alice Wilke. Press and communication, Anna Franke and Sarina Scheidegger. Technical support by Karin Bohrer, Chris Handberg, Esther Hunziger and Konrad Siegel. Copyright by Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW 2022.